This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me in the virtual studio is Paul Anthony Nelson. Hello, hello. What madness is this? <laughs> it's topsy-turvy world. <laughs> and Sally Christie, a very uh, a, a belated happy birthday to you, Sal. Oh, thanks, Flick. Happy birthday, It was a nice Sal. day. Got an, got an ex, a gifted an extra two weeks of stage four restrictions for my birthday. <laughs> no, it was still really lovely. It was. It was a good day. <laughs> what did you wish for, mate? You ruined I it know, for all of us. No, I blew it. <laughs> We've got such a special show for all of our listeners, um, which we'll be revealing very soon. Um, But now it's time for the news. Oscar-winning Czech film director Jiri Menzel died on Saturday at the age of 82 following a long illness. He won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film in 1966 for Closely Watched Trains and was a leading figure of the Czech New Wave. Uh, This Saturday, the Capitol and RMIT are presenting an online event titled In Fabric, a long weekend for fashion victims and film fetishists. On Saturday, 12th of September, there will be an online screening of director Peter Strickland's consumerist satire In Fabric, which is a bit of a favourite here at Primal Screen and another. we all loved Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, it's definitely up there in my top ten. And the online event is going to be followed by a live conversation between Strickland and another Primal Screen favourite, former Plato's Cave co-host, Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Um, So that would be exciting. And they're even having a... um, uh, there's another event on Monday the 14th with Strickland and In Fabrics costume designer Jose Thompson um, um, and that's also going to be held at RMIT or held with RMIT. Tickets are $14 plus a booking fee and $1 from every sale will be donated to the social studio. You can head to thecapital.tv for more details and ticket sales. It is, of course, still Radiothon here at Triple R, and we have thankfully been able to continue with our broadcast. So your support during this time is really appreciated. And to be in the running to win a whole heap of amazing prizes, just subscribe before the 30th of September for a chance to win and help keep Triple R on air. Because throughout the pandemic, we've been broadcasting weekly isolation specials and we'll be focusing on editing. Editing is so often eclipsed by the centrality of the director in the way in which we talk and think about film, but re- editors are responsible for the rhythm and the pace of films. Um, a lot of editors that originally started out as cutters and then there was this need to um, distinguish between this creative experimentation, and that's where the role of the editor came about. So women have actually had a really long and successful history in film editing since the beginning of cinema, and some of the most iconic films in the history of cinema were indeed edited by women. Um, For instance, Anne V. Coates, who did Lawrence of Arabia, um, and later Erin Brockovich, uh, Werner Fields, famous for Jaws, uh, Thelma Shoemaker for Raging Bull, and she's had heaps of other um, 
co- collaborations with Martin Scorsese, of course the the partnership between Sally Mank and Quentin Tarantino, Carol Littleton from ET. Uh, there's so many more. Uh, Mary Sweeney, Sandra Dare. Um, but Primal Screen, we're really passionate about local cinema and especially keen to spotlight the work of women in the industry. We're spotlighting the work of an award-winning editor and an icon of Australian cinema, Jill Bilcock. We'll get star-crossed and loved up in Baz Luhrmann's iconic adaptation from 1996, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. And then we'll shoot for the moon in Rob Sitch's rural Australian comedy, The Dish, from 2000. But now it's time for the show. That was, of course, Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge from 2001, a film that a reviewer once famously said looked like it was cut by a Russian serial killer on crack. And joining us in the virtual studio is that Russian serial killer on crack herself, (laughs) one of the world's most renowned film editors, the Oscar-nominated and four-time BAFTA nominee, Jill Bilcock. Welcome, Jill. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) It's very exciting to be here and as a serial killer of film. I um, really enjoy being on Triple R. I think that's the perfect place for it. <laughs> I agree. Jill, you've got 39 editing credits to your name, so I'm not even going to try list them all. Um, but I'll pick out some highlights for our listeners. Um, you've edited everything from, like, Aussie classics like Richard Lowenstein's Dogs in Space and PJ Hogan's Mural's Wedding, uh, Head On, which is one of my favourites, um, Japanese Story, um, more recent smash hits like Red Dog and Jocelyn Morehouse's The Dressmaker. You also edited all three films from Baz Luhrmann's Red Curtain trilogy, which includes Strictly Ballroom, Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge. And that's not even mentioning uh, all the international films you've worked on, like Elizabeth the Golden Age, Road to Perdition and Catch, and Catch Fire. Um, what actually first attracted you to becoming an editor? I wasn't attracted. It sort of just <laughs> happened. It's a bit like most people in the film industry. I think you find out a lot of people like directors were originally going to be a doctor, George Miller, um, Anna Kokonos, a lawyer. We all just um, take up this thing of storytelling that we can't resist. And uh, I just um, was chosen by um, Skepsi to work for him after I'd done a film course and Um, He said, do what you like. You want to be a director, you want to be this, you want to be that, and why don't you just work your way around the building? And I got stuck in editing. Um, And it's not really what I intend to do, but I kind of like having, uh, it's like this giant jigsaw to deal with all the time and how much I can change things and how much you can influence a story. So it's just one of those things it wasn't an ambition I can assure you I wouldn't you know it's not a glamorous job not at all a glamorous job well you're not out there on the set you're not there in the midst of it all and you've worked with um you've worked with so many different directors like Sam Mendes uh, Baz Luhrmann as we mentioned before and and Fred Skepsi um how how's your creative approach changed depending on the director that you're working with because it seems like in a lot of cases collaboration a conversation between the two of you Well, it's exciting because every film is terrifying and every director is different. 
So um, you have to adjust and try to work out what their vision might be. Um, say with something like Baz Luhrmann, I had an opportunity to go wild and things I wanted to try, I was able to try. Um, but generally, you really have to adjust and settle into, uh, you know, I usually try to be quiet for a couple of weeks and see and try to adjust to what the director is, how they shoot, um, how they see things, the pace, etc., and then try to work out how best to deliver something that's what they expected and much more. Mm, and I recently rewatched Axel uh, Grigor's um, documentary on you, uh, Jill Bilcock dancing the invisible. And I was really struck. There's a moment in which you talk about being captured by an actor's expression or movement and using that as a starting point that then directs you on, on how you're going to cut the scene. I remember in film school learning um, all the conventions of editing that we needed to abide by in order to make good cinema. Um, but when I look at your work, the moments that seem most iconic, um, uh, like the you know split second cuts and the sped up movement, seem to actually rebel against a lot of these conventions. And I'm interested, what do you think the role of like rebellion or resistance plays in your creative approach to film? I think it's actually about finding the centre of the scene. If you see something in the rushes that's unexpected or um, very truthful, that I might start with that part and it might be the centre of the scene and work outwards. I don't want to do anything conventional like start with a wide shot and go in, you know, like the obvious things, but try and find, you know, handpick all the really funny little bits or extraordinary bits or very touching bits depending on the, what kind of movie you're making. But I want to actually find more in what's presented to me if possible, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And just maybe this is taking a bit of a, a deep dive in, but I you had, um what was it, 16 different um, alternative starts to Moulin Rouge. I'm just so curious, how do you, I mean, that's a huge creative output just on one point, but how do you even decide, how do you begin to, to follow that thread? Um, I'm just so curious about your creative process when you've got all these options. Um, what, how do you direct yourself into choosing a certain, you know, making that decision? Yeah, editing is unfortunately all about decisions. And um, you try to, to make the right decisions, but it doesn't necessarily happen the first time. And the fact is that they're all a whole lot of building blocks that you can move around in different ways and you can reinterpret emotionally everything by the way you place it, the, the amount of time you leave it on the screen, the music you put with it, the frightening sound or no sound. There's so many different things you can add to it. So when somebody says, oh, it's not quite there, and, for example, the opening, the opening of Moulin Rouge had all those different ways of doing it because we're kind of making it up as we went along anyway and the same with Romeo and Juliet which is probably my best opening sequence um, it developed it grew and it grew by accident in Romeo and Juliet we had to we ran it we're starting to run out of money so I put together 13 minutes of bits and pieces and of course, I just thought, I'm going to make this really crazy, wild. I'm going to put all the language in type. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to, you know, 
get as much signage and jump all over the place, et cetera, and show all these bits and pieces. So a lot of that ended up being, it taught me something and it taught, Baz and I both realised that the language is so difficult by Shakespeare, the more you see it written, the more you hear it heard, the more you introduce people by name and keep doing it. it what we did was create by just accident, by doing a, a teaser halfway through the film, a style that could create something new, which is a way to lead you into language and character of something that nobody would expect. So things, things just happen and evolve <laughs> and you can do anything you like. You really can. Don't ever say you can't do anything is my motto to the director, <laughs> even, if, even if they're wrong. At least you find out something when they're wrong and they then realise if they're wrong. If they don't realise they're wrong, then probably you're maybe working for the wrong director if gonna, it is wrong. <laughs> you know, but, back together, to... <laughs> but together you do decide and you grow together and you go mm. forward in an optimistic way. Never in you can't do something, never in a, never in a negative way is the only way to go forward because there are thousands of options, incredible yeah. amount of options on how to put a scene together or an opening of a film. And Moulin Rouge was like that. And it was it was difficult because it was, you know, these these are stories. Um, well, Moulin Rouge is a very simple story, like a Cinderella story, and a, you know, it's a love story. It's got it, it's just nothing, everything's been done before. So you still got to reinvent the wheel every time you go out there to make a movie somehow and give it something that someone will remember and, and it'll stay with them. And that's what I want is that they're going to remember that movie. Mm, I, I was reading um, uh, a book the other day that was talking about how film should get under your skin and I thought the way in which you edit often there is this you, you're creating a body that the the spectator either is going to dance or fight with and I I really the opening to Romeo and Juliet is spectacular I um it's still just it's it's the feeling of you're just you res you you bring the spectator to that speed. And it was really interesting thinking about the fact that Lumen wanted to use um, the original text and the, the editing really complements that and there's that pacing to it in the iambic pentameter. And I thought that was really powerful because it's often quite a difficult, you know, it's often a, a difficult text to get into. And for, for that to be um, resonating with those those cuts and that movement and it adds so much um beauty to it um another film that we looked at was of course Strictly Ballroom that was a, a film that we covered a few weeks ago oh yeah and, that was very uh, early yeah and I you know it's interesting just throughout your filmography noticing certain trends and um you've definitely been um referenced for for bringing in this sped up um footage and I actually think of that as quintessential of Australian cinema you know George Miller uses it a lot in his um, films particularly in like Fury Road and things like that so how do you think you situate yourself within the broader landscape of Australian cinema? Well I don't really know I think um, it's uh, you know I was lucky because I came from uh, a background of art in the first place so the visual led me and then also I came, my parents were very uh, literature driven. So I had a lot of story talk to me all the time, but um, often visual shapes and movement would excite me. So I 
started off very um, visually excited, my editing. And, you know, now, like if you see uh, the film that opens the Brisbane Film Festival, High Ground, it's very languid and very beautiful and it's about violence but it's done very gently and, uh, you know, it's about, um, you know, it's an important way of expressing another form of rhythm um, to show something with integrity and to respect a story, to give it honesty. So there are different methods for different storytelling and I think what happened was that what I did was I, I, with Romeo and Juliet and Strictly Ballroom and Baz's first three films, Moulin Rouge, I gave people the right to be more experimental. And that's what I did at that particular time. And it's what I wanted to play with because I was so visually driven and musically driven. So I think that's probably something I did. And it broke in America eventually. They hated me to begin with. I mean, Oliver Stone asked to see me after Romeo and Juliet. Of course he did. That that just seems like a perfect <laughs> match for some. And, you know, that was kind of sweet that you get um, this recognition from people that really do love editing and you do realise that the more you work in film, the directors that are probably the most famous came out of editing like David Lean was an editor. Scorsese's a real editor, you know, like these people. And, you know, I've met both those editors. I know Anne, I knew Ann Coates before she died. I hired her daughter on How to Make an American Quilt as my first assistant. And I recently was invited by Thelma Schumacher into the editing room in New York when I was over there. And that was great. We used the same platform. We edit on a very primitive system, which is not avid. It's not really primitive, but people think it is because it it takes still a device that is actually like if you worked with real film, you have a controller. It's it's um, nonlinear and it's still, you know, it's just the same as avid, but it gives us a better sense of rhythm in the way we work. And Thelma and myself are probably the two people that still use this equipment. So we had a lot of fun together. And, um, yeah, I think um, not much more to say about that except that I love these women that I've met along the way and also the the other famous um, editors that I've met. Um, usually I find editors really boring, to be quite honest. <laughs> They don't get out enough. Yeah. <laughs> Too much sitting in a room by themselves. That's you know, right. Yes, <laughs> fiddling yes. with knobs. Yes. Uh, I was just wondering, Jill, do you uh, do you tend to, when you start an edit, are you kind of guided by the working relationship with the director or do you have your own very unique process that you go in with? Like are you dictated by script or are you dictated by just kind of getting in there and, and, and feeling out the story for yourself? Like... What, what exactly is your kind of process for okay, getting into an I, I I usually don't read the paperwork. So mm. I look at the material and try and work out what I think that material tells me it's going to say. And then afterwards I look at the paperwork if I, and then go, oh, oh, <laughs> I was meant to do this or that. And then I think 
about that to see whether or not that's the right way to go. Um, that's how I originally particularly started. I never read any of the paperwork. Um, just looked at the rushes and, and put it together. Um, the director, I just tried to be very quiet for a couple of weeks if it's a new director to try and find out. And then gradually I um, tried to please, try to get what they expect to get out of a scene. And I've always been very lucky. I've worked with an incredible amount of very talented people, not people that drive you crazy or you think that you just can't work with. <laughs> so it just gets better and better. And I think then you just start to discover stuff yourself. But um, while they're shooting, you just do the best thing you can to just keep up with mm. what's being shot to make sure that nothing's missing. And, for example, um, on uh, a film that was with um, Spielberg, J Joseph Morehouse, that's How to Make an American Quilt, um, with Winona Ryder and a whole pack of incredible divas, of famous women in it, um, Spielberg's wife was in the opening scene and um, it was a terrible day. There was The weather was appalling, huge winds, everything. They were meant to be like a, at a hippie commune and it was just a disaster. So I had to call straight away that scene's not ever going to work. It's never going to be used. And so and I then at that point said, why don't we together with Jocelyn, um, why don't we shoot it just quilting around a table, the same dialogue, and the little girl under the table and instead of this whole little girl growing up on a hippie commune. And we did that and it was much more visual and much more exciting and much more interesting. And sometimes you've got to call an opening or a closing or, or a scene that's really bad as you go along and say, can you take that dialogue and give it to somebody else if it helps the story progress, if we can't get that actor back or that actor wasn't able to deliver that line or, or that information as well as you'd hope for. But it's it's pretty rare. You know, it, it's just you just try and work the best you can um, and keep up and only ever highlight when it, you really feel it doesn't work. Don't go sending out lists saying you need a cutaway of a, uh, you know, a tire going through a puddle. There's always another way around it. You know, you don't have to have rules to how to come to the next scene. Work it out another way. Move the scene somewhere else or get rid of it. Just, you know, there's always some other way to deal with something. Jill, do you have any advice for listeners who are hoping to get into film editing? Um. Yeah, well, it's very different today because you have to be a technical genius as well uh, with, uh, you know, I get looked after very well. Um, I can throw my hands up. You know, I, I started on film, so I had to convert to uh, a computer and I found it very difficult to begin with. I used to blame the machine and realised it was always me. So I had to learn to accept the fact that I make mistakes. And uh, I think that today to be creative, technical and budgets being whittled away 
having to be a one-man show in a in in a way asked an awful lot of somebody. But um, I do think if it's it's an incredible job, and I think if you're really interested in it and you have a an ability to sort things out from lots of small pieces. Um, you know, whether you're very good at jigsaws or God knows what, um, you know, you can, and you've got a lot of patience and also you're extremely observant of uh, people and looking at the rushes, et cetera, uh, to find what you need out of them, go for it and get a training because you do need to, you, you now can't walk in like me with no, I, I started straight away. I never was an assistant. So um, today you must learn. There's too much to learn mm. with the technology that you have to combine in with being creative. So um, I just um, think get into a place, meet people, yes. watch and and, and edit. Everybody can edit. You can edit every. You have to every day now with things on your phone, uh, things you say that you don't want somebody else to, you don't want to hurt somebody or, yeah. you know, we're constantly editing. <laughs> so um, go for it. We've been chatting with the award-winning editor of a whole heap of films and the subject of what, like Jill Bilcock. In lockdown, you've been doing, working on a few feature-length films. So you've got Calling for Figaro, um, Penguin Bloom and High Ground, which you mentioned earlier, which will be opening the Brisbane Film Festival. Um, if you want to learn even more about Jill's amazing filmography, I strongly encourage you to watch Axel Grigor's documentary, Jill Bilcock, Dancing the Invisible, which is streaming now on Docplay. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. A big, big thank you to Jill Bilcock. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen with Sally Christie, Paul Anthony Nelson and myself, Flick Ford. We're going to be talking about Romeo uh, and Juliet, which is Baz Luhrmann's iconic masterpiece from 1996. Offering lovesick teens a manual on heartbreak and longing, Luhrmann's spectacular adaptation coupled heartthrob Leonardo DiCaprio with the angelic Claire Danes. The film is a wonderful medley of religious iconography, Shakespearean wit and lots of lustful looks through blue-lit aquariums. Sal, this was your pick. If our listeners were to put on Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet... What satisfaction can Thoust have tonight? Uh, this movie, I just I absolutely adore it. Um, I I was just saying then in that break to Jill Bilcock, which was pretty exciting, that this was one of the films that really made me fall in love with cinema and seeing this in um, cinema just it absolutely blew my mind. I think I was about 12 or 13 when this came out and um, it, it just made me understand how exciting cinema can be. Mm. Um, that adrenaline and the energy that comes through the opening sequence in this is just, it still gets my heart racing. Rewatching this over the weekend, it was just absolutely phenomenal. And um, I think 96 was a pretty interesting year for cinema with this kind of, um, I guess, energy that, that, was, that really came through. Um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, train spotting, which I think is a very, very different film to Romeo and Juliet, but and they both were released in the same year. But there was, yeah, just this really kind of this this energy that comes through the screen and really kind of gets to you. And also, both films have these 
uh, incredible soundtracks that are tied through to them. And like you said, with Romeo and Juliet, it was like what the second highest selling album of the year. Mm. Um, everything about it is so quintessentially 90s that it, I guess, runs the risk of almost dating, but it's still so fresh and so invigorating. And the the production design by Catherine Martin is absolutely incredible. And I guess, yeah, the thing with the uh, this energy that comes through Romeo and Juliet is really due to the soundtrack and, of course, Jill Wilcox editing there. So it's, yeah, absolutely phenomenal, this movie. It, it's thrilling to watch. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, mm. I had a when I was 20, this was 21. Um, this was 21. I was 21 when this came out. Um, and, uh, at, you know, for fear of dating myself, I, the, the opening to this film made me like weep tears of joy. Yeah. I remember at the time it was just like, what is this? It was just, um, so innovative. So just grab you by the, by the, by the shirt. And it's funny. I've, I've heard I've heard people saying that recently. It's like, like somebody said to me, isn't it kind of nineties now? And I just think of it as being timeless. Mm. I, I, I feel like it. that when I rewatched it, I, I really felt like that. And it's, um, yeah, I, I don't think the, the, the soundtrack choice doesn't sound dated. The, any of the um, costume design, the production design, mm. no, none of it looks dated. Um it just still feels like it pops. Yeah, it was a heightened world, and it sort yep. of feels like its own sort of Miami meets Shakespeare universe. Um, yeah, I like. I think this is, and and it's also occurred to me recently. This film is not nearly as well regarded as it should be. Yeah, like, I know. I was shocked by that. I looked at it online, and there was something like sixty percent of people like. Yeah. it. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> six point seven out of ten <laughs> average on I'm. Yeah. average on IMDb, 3.3 on Letterboxd, 60 on Metacritic. It's like this is one of – I've always thought of this as one of the great movies. It Mm. is. It's phenomenal. This this is literally a a masterpiece, and it's such an announcement of a film um, from Lerman and Martin just kind of delivering on everything promised by Strictly Ballroom and then Mm. some. It's also a weirdly faithful adaptation because there's just so much layered into each shot. Um, it's it's a kind of a ravishing eye and eargasm. The cast are all amazing, and the way they've clearly teamed with Billcock to to put this together and make it sing is just it's just genius. And, and yeah, I, I am just I, I never fail to be um, riveted and swept away by by this film. I think yeah. I think it's genius. Yeah. And, and and shout out to John Leguizamo as as <laughs> yes. the Prince of Cats. As I, I do I do have to confess that as seeing this for the first time as a twelve year old girl, I cried for a bit about four hours after I watched this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was around I don't know ten or eleven probably when it came out, and this was really um, instructional <laughs> for um, having a later later crushes. Um, yeah, oh, look, this is an amazing film. It's so beautifully made, beautifully cut. That opening scene gets me every time. It's like per- perfection, in all honesty. It has this real sense of knowing what it is and it just goes there and it's wonderfully over the top and it should be because um, it just it brings out what Shakespeare is all about and I, I 
this is easily one of my faves. I'm so glad you picked it, Sal, because it's I'm also that, to, that, like, shoehorn that teenage, everything about being yes. a teenager and emotion and that is completely over the top and completely heightened. And this, yeah, like you said, Flick, it just captures that, you know, over the topness mm. of that. Mm. Yeah, Within this so- world, all these emotions seem balanced mm. because the world, the entire world itself is so heightened. Yeah, it's interesting how, like, it's all through those, like, exchanges as well. Like, that aquarium scene is so iconic because it really captures this sense of of teen love and the intensity of it. And I just, I recently rewatched The Revenant and it's just amazing thinking about Leo's career. And um, I've always loved him from, like, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. But he's an exceptional actor and Claire Danes is really well cast in this film. Um, if you, for whatever reason, have not seen this film, uh, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet is available to rent or buy on YouTube, Google Play or Apple TV. I really recommend that you check it out. <laughs> Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Paul Anthony Nelson, Sally Christie, and myself, Flick Ford. And now it's time for our second feature of the night. I believe so. Bloody will hope so. I mean, no offence, but uh, the Americans spend billions of dollars to let us watch man walk on the moon, and in the end, it falls to you, blokes. <laughs> I mean, how do you feel about that? A lot better before you happen, you trap. That was, of course, Rob Sitch's rural comedy from 2000, The Dish, starring Sam Neill, Tom Long and Kevin Harrington. The film tells a story of the true story of how Park's radio telescope in New South Wales was used to relay the live television of man's first steps on the moon during the Apollo 11 mission in 1969. Now, while scenes in which the technicians take a ride on the giant moving dish are based in reality, I was disappointed to learn that they apparently never did play cricket on it, which seems to (laughs) me like a wasted opportunity. Seems un-Australian. It really does, doesn't it? Yeah. Paul, uh, this is your pick. So did Rob Sitch's comedy land safely on your comedy moon or did it get lost in orbit sorry in advance (laughs) it was uh it was a small step for man and a giant leap for australian comedy cinema at the turn of the millennium yeah i it's funny it's like if you'd have if you'd have said uh that the creators of um the late show and the degeneration and uh um Frontline would become Australia's answer to Frank Capra for about five years. I would never have been. One would never have predicted that, but they were. It's like they they had had this beautiful Capra esque touch to the castle, this sort of you know little Aussie battler against the world type thing, and then applied this to this at the time very often for like quite often forgotten uh, story of the part that a little uh, satellite station in parks in rural New South Wales played in transmitting the Apollo 11 moon landing to the world. And it's really, yeah, and it has that same sort of Capra-esque feel, but with also with um, Working Dog just had, particularly this time as well, had such a collective gift for crafting lovable characters and observational character uh, comedy with a pinch of satire. Um, this is just such a sweet film. It's it's a film without any villains, unless you count, you know, the off, the odd mention of Richard Nixon. Um, <laughs> but there are no villains in the film. Everybody's really just kind of lovely and trying to pull together and do the same thing. And it's a bit of a loving tribute to the kind of can-do ingenuity and laconic outlook, kind of endemic to the Australian persona 
such as that is. I think it lays things on a little bit thick towards the end, but it's really it's just a really lovely film. And surprisingly, I think early on as well, a little bit influenced by the West Wing, I found at the mm-hmm. time. Um, the score, the, the composer seems to be kind of channeling WG Snuffy Walden there for a while with a few of those, and particularly the scenes that take place in Parliament House, very walk and talk. Um, but yeah, I, I love this. I, I, I mean, working dogs work, um, pretty much everything except for any questions for Ben is just wonderful. Um, Mm. yeah, yeah, I do. I do adore. This is like a bit of a warm hug of a film. I had actually never seen it until last night. I don't know why it just hadn't happened. Um, it's, Really interesting to think about it in if we're uh, looking at um, Jill Billcock's work and I guess just we've been uh, obviously looking at pacing and things like this and this is the total opposite of a film in every way, shape and form to Romeo and Juliet. Mm. And when I do think of um, Jill's work, I guess just the films that, are, you know, as you said before, Flick, uh, her filmography is, is massive, the films that I feel that I know um, the most are ones that are closely linked with music and a very fast pace, you know, Dogs in Space, even, you know, things like Muriel's Wedding. Um, So to see it really slowed right down here was very interesting. And it, like you said, Paul, it is a sweet little movie that it's this huge moment that happened in history and this film seems small in the best way contained in this small town. Um, What I found perhaps most interesting with this, uh, I have one of the same things that you mentioned as well, Paul, was the the lack of a villain. This really quite basic storyline that we've got in the dish, it seems almost unconventional in the way Mm. that we we watch cinema, that we, of course, there's, you know, a narrative, a beginning, middle and an end, but the conflict in it is... um, well, at the end it's quite big, but towards the it takes a really long time to get there. Uh, and I was even thinking at one point, what's going to happen? Something has to happen in this film rather than <laughs> them just kind of being in this dish. But, yeah, that that I guess the lack of what we're used to seeing with, you know, kind of a, a villain character or some kind of major, major conflict that comes midway through the film, we don't have that here. And I found that a really interesting approach and, um, yeah, a really different take on the way that we kind of view stories. So, yeah. Mm. And especially when their stories um, so so much kind of a fabric of, of how we understand this historical event. Yeah. I was I was really into this, actually. It was a nice film to watch, especially when we've all probably had a bit of a tough week. Like you said, Paul, it is such like a warm hug of a film. Um, I was really I was really chuffed when you picked this because it's been ages since I've seen it, and I think it's now used as a uh, film in high school to as a oh, wow. kind of like good case study. Yeah, so um, in I reckon a- Romeo and Juliet probably is true. Oh, yeah. sure. yeah. I was like rewatching that. I was like, when this came yeah. out, English teachers everywhere would have been rejoicing. Yeah, so <laughs> it was definitely. Them. Yeah, it was definitely included <laughs> in um, in my high school. Yeah, for sure. Um, I thought also it's a really lovely pairing with Romeo and Juliet because it really shows Jill's um, breadth of work. Um, Mm. I remember watching, um, there's a few scenes and this is so different from the comedy that's in Romeo and Juliet and Strictly Ballroom. It's a really different kind of comedy and it's more of a sort of a deadpan um, 
you know, timing and things like that. And and she captures it through this kind of longer takes, like slightly longer takes, which is actually the opposite of what she's famous for, which is these really quick edits. So I think it's a wonderful film to showcase the diversity of her work. So I, was, I think for both of you, this is like wonderful. It just so happened that you picked those two. But I, I really think that it gave me plenty to think about in terms of how Jill works as an editor and the way in which she's able to adapt on the, to the story as well, which um, is really remarkable, I thought. Um, I did, um, I was interested to find out um, that Jill Bilcock had actually turned down editing American Beauty, which is Sam Mendes's, wow. um, yeah, 1999 film, is it? Yep. Yeah, I think it's 99. Um, yep. Because she was working on The Dish. Um, so, and then but later on she ended up. Um, working on uh, Road to Perdition, which is um, directed by Sam Mendes. So it's kind of one of those things where, um, yeah, it was interesting finding out more about this film. And I did find all the characters really lovable. I love Sam Neill. Isn't he just a perfect he's, human being? He's just wonderful. <laughs> also, a shout-out to a guy who I don't know where he's dropped off the map. He hasn't worked in 15 years, um, at least not on screen. Tyler Kane. Uh, who plays Rudy, the security guard. Oh, yeah. Hilarious. And he was in a show called Fire, playing a character called Grievous. It was quite a a bizarre kind of (laughs) during the 90s. And, yeah, and this was like, he's so good in this. And it's like, where did this guy go? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so true. A lot of the cast of this, were a lot of the cast in the Dish TV actors. There was a lot of sea change alumni. Yeah, because a lot of them was kind Mm. of when I was watching it going, I know that face, but I don't remember where I know that face Mm. from. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, the late Tom Long who passed away earlier this year, sadly. Oh, right, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I um, I don't know. It's such a like, yeah. There's so many smaller actors in it that I'm like, oh wow, I know that person. But yeah, maybe you're right, um, Sal, that there were quite a few from from that time period as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, such an excellent an excellent film. Um, the dish is available to rent or buy on YouTube, Google, uh, Google Play. Is it? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know my notes. Google Play or Ozflix, which is a new one for me. Um, you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Paul Anthony Nelson and myself, Luke Ford. We revisited Baz Luhrmann's spectacular adaptation, Romeo and Juliet. It's available to rent or buy on YouTube, Google Play or Apple TV. We then took a free ride on Rob Sitch's The Dish, which is available to rent or buy on YouTube, Google Play or Ozflix. And both of these films were edited by our very special guest, the award-winning Australian editor, Jill Bilcock. A very, very big thank you to Jill Bilcock for joining us on the show. To learn more about her very impressive career in film editing, do check out Axel Grigor's documentary, Jill Bilcock, Dancing the Invisible, which is streaming now on DocPlay. She also has all these amazing films that are about to be coming out um falling for figaro penguin bloom and high ground which will be opening the brisbane film festival so make sure you check those out uh, you can also subscribe to the primal screen podcast via itunes or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts and a huge thank you to real life angel morty osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast, and to the endlessly patient Carl Chapman. Um, Big thank you to you, Carl. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 